just a, a wonderful experience, in spite of the fact that it was a Baptist church. And after attending about 375 deacons meetings and about 285 trustees meetings and about 35,000 nursery meetings, uh, I, I finally realized that that wasn't for me. And But anyway, I, I find that the second coming captivates your life. Most of my books on prophecy that I wrote while I was pastoring were my Sunday night sermons. We had the best crowds in town consistently. In fact, for a while we had three morning services and two evening services before we bought a 30-acre Catholic convent uh, school for moving our educational facilities to. But uh, during that time, the Lord richly blessed, and I always talked about the second coming. The second coming really inspires people, and it always has. As a matter of fact, do you know there are three positive effects of teaching Bible prophecy. One is it gives you a, an evangelistic compassion or unction that you didn't have before because you don't never know. You may never meet that person again. Second, it gives you a missionary mindedness. I bet this church, I don't know anything about the inner workings of this church, but I bet you support missionaries. You have a missionary vision because you want to reach the world for Christ. And then third, it gives you a desire to live a holy life in an unholy age. And the second coming should captivate every part of your being. And there's only one exception I've ever heard of, and that is this Swedish couple back in uh, the Midwest. And they had been married 37 years, and they fought every day. And surprisingly enough, they read the Bible and they prayed every day. And finally, she said to him, Sven, God is not pleased with our fighting like this. So I have a suggestion. Let's ask God to take one of us home. <laughs> and then she added, and then I'll go live with my sister in Chicago. <laughs> uh, there, <laughs> there are a couple of special books on the book table I want to call your attention to because I know you're just looking at them again. It's my privilege to edit a number of books, and I have many scholar friends that contribute to us. And uh, Dr. Ed Heinsen and I, he's a First Water Bible scholar, and uh, we put together the popular encyclopedia of Bible prophecy. This is not a book you read from cover to cover. This is a reference book. And you'll find that alphabetically, the 150 major subjects of prophecy are alphabetically arranged. And so if you want to know about the rapture, you just look under R. If you want to know about the second coming, look under S. And you'll find very helpful, and not just from me, but from some of the, the best authorities on that subject. But now a more recent book is, this has every prophecy in the Bible is commented on. So that, and they're all set according to the Bible. If you want to know something about Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, 11, which I think are two of the most important prophecy passages you should study or memorize, you'll find it in this book described by some of the older men who have gone on to be with the Lord and some of the new, but you'll find these will be very excellent helps in studying the Bible. Now, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Titus. I'm going to talk to you this morning about... Uh, 
the second coming of Jesus. And I hope it'll be an inspiration and a blessing in this in, in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. I don't have to tell you what the grace of God is. It's appeared to all men. It's the fact that God has sent His only Son. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And when you anticipate every day in the morning, could this be the day my Lord will come? You're going to live a different life. You'll live a holy life in an unholy age. And I submit to you that's one of the crying needs of the church today in America. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Now, if you ever have one of these Jehovah's Witnesses tell you that, that Jesus has never called God, this is one of the passages you point to. He says, appearing to us the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is God even our Savior Jesus Christ. He is God in human flesh, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Why? Because we believe in life after death. We believe in eternal life after death. In fact, I hope you'll memorize this little expression, the best is yet to come. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, the worst is yet to come. And I'm sorry to say that, but that's true. And as a Christian, you can look forward to wonderful things in the future. We have more living ahead of us than we have behind us. And I'll come to that in a few moments. And the key to everything is the second coming of Jesus. I'd like to show you on the, the chart here. The uh, Yes, this is it. Now, this is the way I think graphically, and I like to reduce everything down to the basic minimums. And you'll find that there are four events between the ages past and the ages to come, and the timeline of man's sojourn here on this earth. That's what the Bible is all about, starting with creation, and then we have the flood. Why, did, why is it the world hates the flood? They've, you, you can't believe how mental gymnastics are applied to explain away worldwide flood evidences in five different major regions of the world that cry out to us that there was a worldwide flood, and yet the scientists do not want us to believe that. Why? Because God judges sin. That's the thing they don't want to face. Man had become so corrupt, he was totally contaminated by sin. It, the, the imaginations of the heart was evil continually, the Bible says. And may I suggest to you, I'm digressing a little bit, what in American history, I think the worst thing that has happened in my lifetime has been the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to legalize pornography. Before that, it was, you know, you couldn't even buy. I can remember when Penthouse was sold with a, black, with a brown paper rag. But today, we have all kinds of social ills this pedophilia that's rampant in our society today, you go back to the history of what person has put in their mind and you'll find it's, it's uh, pornography. Pornography is available. Anyone can do it in this, 
secret chambers of your own heart and mind. But may I remind you, you can't put anything in your mind and not have it affect you. One way or the other, your heart, as the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Why do men and women commit such awful, awful sins today? It's, it's abnormal for them to act like animals because they have corrupted their minds with pornographic literature. Now, that's another whole subject. But the flood cries out to us of one thing above all else, and that is God judges sin. And then the Bible also talks about the first coming of Jesus, and I'll talk to you a little bit later about that. But there are 109 prophecies in the Bible, at least, that told about the Messiah coming, and Jesus fulfilled them all. Now, think about that. In the history of the world, I told you last night there were 13 billion people. I don't know them all. I just think I do. But uh, these 13 billion people, you, you notice they, they have one thing in common. They have never fulfilled nine of the prophecies of Jesus. No one in the history of the world has fulfilled nine except Jesus. And he fulfilled all 109. It puts it in perspective. He was one of a kind. And as often as the Bible talked about the first coming of Jesus, it talks about the second coming more frequently. What an incredible thing. There are 321 prophecies about his second coming in my prophecy study Bible. We have them all listed in the back, 321 prophecies. That's almost three times. Now, I'm not a mathematician or the son of a mathematician, but I mathematize anyway. And I'd like to suggest that if Jesus fulfilled all 109 of the first coming prophecies, then the second coming is three times as certain to happen as the first coming, and that's already a historical fact. So I anticipate the second coming of Jesus as the most important event in human history because it is the, the stepping stone to culminating all of the things that God has for us. And you'll find that God intensifies the Bible. As you get through the Bible, you'll find that more and more he talks about the second coming, the coming of the Lord, the appearance of the Lord. And wherever that appearance is front and center on the, the frontal lobes of your mind, it affects the way you live. It affects the choices you have, the investments you have, the time you consume, and so on. And you'll find that God has a plan and he's revealed it all through the Word of God. That's why the Bible is ostracized from the secular schools that we support in our country. You know, the seculars, they want us to give us the most important thing, give them the most important thing that we have, the brains of our children, for 12,000 hours in secular schools so they can brainwash them in atheism, evolution, sec secular thought processes, conclusions that are just, it boggles the mind to think of how deceptive they are about misunderstanding the purpose and the character of God. Well, the culmination of all of the future plans that God has for us is the second coming of Christ. And I'd like to call your attention to, you know, I was a teacher long enough to know that one of the best things that the teacher does for the class is give them assignments. So since it's a Saturday morning, I want to give you an assignment. Ready for this? I hope that you will read and study First and Second Thessalonians. 
It's an interesting book. How, I don't know how many of you are young Christians here, but you're never too young in the faith to study Bible prophecy. You know why? Two things. One, it proves to you there is a God in heaven. Now, God is not seen with the naked eye. God must be worshipped, he's a spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and truth, as we did so beautifully just a few minutes ago, singing messages of hope that are so characteristic of the church of God. And we worship him through song and emotion. But may I suggest to you that the Bible gives us ample evidence for believing there is a God and it is prophecy. The Lord, I'm going to share this tomorrow morning in a little more in detail, but I'm excited about the fact that, in fact, my assignment to you, i got two. One is to memorize some verses of Scripture. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I believe that they are among the most important verses in the Bible on prophecy, where the Lord, rebuking the children of Israel for worshiping idols, and it, it's for hard for us to understand, but in that passage of Scripture, Isaiah, one of the greatest of the Hebrew prophets, he was a spokesman for God, and God spoke through him and wrote it into the, this book, one of the most authenticated Old Testament prophecies. And Isaiah said to the people, for God, he said, I am the Lord, declaring the end from the beginning. Now, who in the world can declare the end from the beginning? See, that's what prophecy is. It's history written in advance. Anyone here, can, can you write the history in advance? Well, there are certain things that you can pick picture from the current events of the day, but, but we can't foretell things a thousand or two thousand years from now, but God can, and only God can. And he is saying, you can't see me, I'm a spirit, and you must worship me in spirit and in truth, but there is a way you can prove my existence, and that is history written in advance, or prophecy. When prophecy is fulfilled, and there are over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, or passages that were prophetic at the time they were written. Remember last night I said that 28% of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written? Well, Dr. Walbert, one of the greatest scholars in my lifetime, counted them, and there are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. And get this, over half of them have already been fulfilled. For example, Daniel chapter 2. How many, how many uh, world emperors have we had? Four in 2,500 years. Why? Daniel, the young man that was brought back when the king had this dream and he couldn't remember it, and he called in all of the soothsayers and astrologers and the necromancers and the mumbo-jumbo people. He called them all in, and nobody could recall his dream. And so he did what dictators always do. Okay, if you can't do that, I'm off with your head. And that, that got their attention, but they still couldn't do it. So then they brought in Daniel. He was probably 17 or 18 years of age at the time. And he had recalled dreams or he had interpreted dreams for people. And they heard about that. And so in desperation to save their own skin, they brought Daniel in. And Daniel said, the soothsayers and the astrologers and the necromancers could not answer or recall a king's vision. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. And who does the secrets? 
God alone knows the secrets with accuracy. Now, anyone can predict the future, but not have it not come true. But only God can predict the future and it comes true. That's why I believe we need to know that Bible prophecy confirms God. And I found that people that really believe and study Bible prophecy has a, an incredible faith in God. They know, even though they've never seen him, they know there's a God in heaven because he is so careful to fulfill his prophecies. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad you're here today. But now let's pinpoint this down to the second coming. When God said he is going to come again and receive us unto himself. Back, turn with me to John. And I want to call your attention to what I consider one of the most important prophecies of Jesus relative to the rapture of the church. And what I'm really trying to get to, if I catch up with my message today, is uh, the two phases of Jesus' second coming. And in John 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Hey, do we need that message today? As you look around, read the newspaper and listen to Fox News or whatever. And uh, as you listen to that, your heart could be troubled. You see, we're, we're giving away our treasure. We're giving away our freedom. We're giving away everything to people who have ulterior motives. Uh, but that's another story. I'll let Dr. Heim, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dave will do it for us later. <laughs> Dr. Hawking. You know, I, I have a, a little problem with short-term memory. I have an incredible memory for long-term things. But uh, I have a short-term memory. And uh, I think I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> but it, it's, not, it's not Alzheimer's. I learned a little test about Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> and that is that if you forget something... And then later on, it comes to you. Now, that happens to me a lot. In the middle of something, my mind will go blank and I won't think of a word. And then when I'm in bed that, that night, I'm thinking, and there it comes. So if it comes to you later, you don't have Alzheimer's. That's good news. <laughs> but if you forget something and you never again remember, you are in trouble. Okay. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Isn't that an incredible statement? Have you ever been tempted to say to people, believe in God, that's fine. Believe in me the same way you believe in God. I mean, that's, that's blasphemy. I have never even been tempted, and you haven't either. But instead, Jesus said, believe in me, for in my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Because he knows the end from the beginning. He, he was the creator of all things. I go to prepare a place for you. Folks, did you realize when you accepted Jesus, you have his own personal guarantee that he is preparing a place for you. And then he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Why? That where you are, where I am, there you may be also. Now, when you look at the future... <clears throat> Isn't it wonderful to know that he holds the future? I don't know everything about what's going to happen. I, I tell you, it's a rosy picture in the Bible if you understand the whole plan of God for the future. But the important thing is, the things I don't know, I don't worry about. 
because we'll be with Jesus. I remember when I was in, in Minnesota pastoring, somebody asked me to go up to St. Cloud, it's about in the middle of the state, to a prison there to meet some guy. And I'd never been in a prison before. It's not one of my favorite places. And uh, I went in this place, and I'd never heard the gates when they, you know, they're, they're encased in concrete, and they're really pinned into the wall. We go, and when they close behind you, well, it's a kind of an unsettling thing. I, I just, and, and we did that 11 times. And the guy that was taking me in, he had the key. And I was not afraid because I was with the man that had the keys to the future. And Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. He has the keys to the future. So we don't have, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the future, because even if you don't know a lot about it, because he holds the keys. And you'll be able to get out there and breathe this clear air of heaven. And we'll be forever, never, never with the Lord. What a wonderful future. Well, now this is the message we have of the second coming. This is the first reference to the rapture of the church. You see, one of the confusing things about the second coming is that there are two phases to the second coming. One is called rapture, when he's going to take all the Christians out of here. And the, and the world, they, they hate to think about this because we're a special privileged few. Only in that if whosoever calls on the name of the Lord is prepared for the rapture. And when Jesus shouts, he's going to take us up to be with himself. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. By the way, the assignment I wanted to give you, and I forgot, was just not only memorizing that verse, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, but also studying First and Second Thessalonians. And let me give you a little perspective of that. The church of Thessalonica was made out of a pagan Greek culture. And Paul went in there and he preached the gospel and they had such a moving of the spirit. So many people, including Jews, came to faith in Christ that in three weeks, the other unrepentant Jews got angry and they drove Paul out of town. So we know that he was only there for three weeks. He probably, knowing what his pattern was, he probably had Bible classes like this every night and was teaching the new converts. And then six months later, they had an unusual thing happen. They had some of their loved ones died. And they realized that Paul told them there was going to be a rapture, but he didn't tell them any details. And so they sent an entourage from Thessalonica over to Corinth, where Paul was building one of his best ministries in a pagan city of Corinth. And when the entourage got there, they told him about the problem and the same problem, that's why we use this more frequently than any other passage at, at the graveside, because it offers hope for the world, instruction on how we're going to end up. And so they, they said, now, Paul, we've got a problem. Some of our loved ones that accepted Christ when you were there, they died. What happens to them? Isn't that a natural question? And Paul answered them in the fourth chapter of Second. First Thessalonians, and you'll find this incredible dialogue. Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow 
as others who have no hope. Isn't that a neat term? If you are in Jesus, when you die, you just sleep in Jesus. I love that. It sounds so much better than death. Death is so final. But instead of dying, we sleep in Jesus. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. In other words, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to bring our loved ones with him. Now, doesn't that offer you hope? I told you last night the hope that was burned in my heart as a boy, 10 years old. For the Lord, in, in verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Now, remember, this is the first book, probably the first book. Maybe James was written a month before, but the scholars aren't sure on that. But, but I like to think of it. This is the first book in the New Testament written. Why? Because people had an immediate problem, and in answering them, he answered us. And he's saying, for the Lord himself, this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Since the New Testament was not written, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they had not been written until after First Thessalonians was written. That's why I gave you the assignment to read First Thessalonians, and I'll tell you what happened. In fact, Second Thessalonians is exactly the same. Read those eight chapters, and you'll find that the second coming is mentioned in every single chapter. What does that say to you? That Paul believed it was important for brand new baby Christians to know and study the second coming of Christ. And that second coming message is what activated the church and had them so evangelistically minded and going out and sharing their faith in those first three centuries particularly. And he said, now I'm going to tell you something by the word of the Lord. They, they had a gift in the first century of the gift of prophecy because they didn't have all the prophecies that we had written for us to study. And he said, God revealed this to me and that he had the gift of prophecy. Now many of us believe that that gift ceased when that which is perfect has come, which is the Bible. Now, once that Bible was written, then we no longer needed these temporary gifts of prophecy. And Paul had that gift. And this is what he's saying to you. That we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or hinder those that are asleep. And so God has a plan in the rapture to take care of those who sleep in Jesus, like my father and mother, and many of you have relatives and so on, that are sleeping in Jesus. He's going to take them, but you that are alive. And how does it happen? In verse 16, and please mark this in your Bible. Memorize this. this is one of the great Bible verses. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of, the, of God, and be careful in verse 16. And with the voice of the archangel to lead the children of Israel during the tribulation period, as you see on the chart, and the trump of God, which is the trump of judgment on the world, the day of vengeance of God. And verse 17, Lord, I'm having a little problem with my eyes. I don't read as well as I used to. I've been using these eyes for a long time. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. 
By the way, that's an experienced shout for resurrection. That shout is not the shout of a novice. He raised three people while he was here on this earth. And now that he's gone back to heaven, when he shouts, the whole body of Christ will respond. Those that are dead in Christ will respond first. And then those who are alive and remain will be changed and will meet them in the clouds. Isn't that magnificent? God, in his wonderful grace, has given us an opportunity to meet our loved ones. And then the action really happens. Then we go up and we meet the Lord. Have you ever thought about what you're going to say when you look into the face of Jesus? I thought about that a lot. I think I, the first thing I want to do is bow down before him and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for the undeserved gift of eternal life and the confident expectation that when he shouts, we're going to see him. And then it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I can't tell you everything that's going to happen for the millions of years that we've got ahead of us, but I'll tell you it's okay. We'll be with Jesus. And then he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I find incredible comfort in knowing we're going to be with Jesus. Now you see this on your chart. The rapture is first. But what I want to show you is there is no possible way that the rapture and the glorious appearing are this one and the same thing. They are at least seven years apart. One is because this happens before the tribulation begins. In fact, it may even happen before a transition period between the rapture and the signing of the covenant between Antichrist, according to Daniel 9. You see, the rapture doesn't start the tribulation. The signing of the covenant with Antichrist and Israel. Dave will talk to you about that a little bit later, I'm sure. That's what starts the seven-year tribulation. The, the prophetic calendar of the tribulation begins. And what is the purpose of the tribulation? Now, get the mercy of God in this. You see the, how short it is? It's a, the shortest of all the prophetic times that I've seen in the Bible. And yet, so much material, almost the whole book of Revelation is about that, plus many passages in Daniel and other places. And you'll find that that tribulation, when the world goes through the most traumatic chaos they've ever experienced, what is the purpose of that? God is shaking the earth because then man looks to God. 911 is a classic example. Many people were in church on Sunday right after that that never went to church before. Why? They were terrified, and that's a normal human reaction to things unexplainable. And God is going to use that with 21 judgments to shake the world of man's false sense of security. As long as man thinks that I can master my own fate and I'm taking care of the future, he's very independent of God. But when the world shakes, he looks to God and says, hey, things are out of control. We need supernatural help. And Notice where it is on this, the calendar of God. Because at the end of the tribulation, what happens? The glorious appearing. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, 24. We were in that last night and I preached so long I didn't get to it. But Matthew 24. And he says in verse 29, Immediately after 
the tribulation of those days. The sun will be dark, and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn because they weren't ready for his coming. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send the angels, or his angels, with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, do you notice how different that is from what we've read in the two passages about the second coming? The rapture of the church is different. Is a different event. One is almost a secret coming. Only the believers will be part. The dead in Christ and, and uh, we that are alive and remain in Christ will be caught up together. The world, they'll be aware that we are gone, particularly in America, where a, a large percentage of the population are born again. Have you ever thought about how the rapture is going to change America? That's why I don't get into arguments about is the United States in prophecy. I, I don't find it anywhere clearly defined. And you can find it some infinitesimal details if you want, but I just don't find it anywhere clearly revealed. Why? Because the rapture will change everything, particularly in America. Can you imagine how many pilots are going to show up for work after the rapture? Or how many police officers are not going to be available? Our school teachers or doctors or emergency workers? You know, this goes on. Every legitimate profession in the world has Christians in this country, in it? And they'll be gone. Talk about our military. Think of William here as a Navy officer and how God has used him and, all, and thousands of others to preserve our country. At least a third of them will be gone. And the whole country will be changed because the rapture will snatch out all these people. The world will know that something graphic has taken place. Time is like a thief. It just runs away with you. But I want to show you that the tribulation period is not some isolated event. In the, if you've still got Matthew 24, look back at verse 21. We read this briefly last night, and I didn't have time to amplify it. But in verse 21, it says, Then there will be great tribulation. So that's picturing after the rapture, the great tribulation, such as has not been since the world began until this time or ever shall be. The worst time in the history of the world is still ahead. And that's why it is imperative that you know Jesus and face that time. And may I point out that that's not an obscure teaching. As a matter of fact, I have found 49 references to the tribulation in the Old Testament. Let me just read a few of the passages of references. You might want to write some of these down. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30. In Daniel 9, it's called the 70th week of Daniel. It's called the Lord's strange work in Isaiah 28. It's called the day of Israel's calamity, Deuteronomy 32. It's called the tribulation in, Dan, in Deuteronomy 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 30. It's called the indignation by Isaiah and Daniel. The overflowing scourge, the day of vengeance, the year of recompense, the time of trouble. 
the day of wrath, it's called in Zephaniah, the day of distress or wastedness or desolation or darkness, the day of gloominess, the day of thick darkness, Zephaniah, the day of the trumpet, Zechariah, the day of alarm, Zechariah 1.16. It's called the day of the Lord. It's incredible how many references in the Old Testament, 49, there are at least 11 in the New Testament. The day of the Lord, the wrath of God, the hour of trial, and the list goes on. There are many references to the tribulation. And when you talk about the second coming, always keep in mind that some of the passages that you read about the second coming have to do with the rapture. Some of them have to do with the glorious appearing. And you need to study the context to picture what they are. So what I want to do quickly before you fall asleep, get, get a grip on the, yourself and come to life. I want to show you why these two events cannot be the same. In fact, there are 15 differences between the rapture and the glorious appearing. They're both phases of the same event, the same second coming. One is for the church. One is for the whole world. For example, you might want to write these down I've got them in a couple of my books that I mentioned. Number one, Christ comes in the air for his own. And so that if Jesus shouted from heaven, all of you that are born again will be taken up to be with him in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And in the glorious appearing, Christ comes with his own. We'll be with him when he comes in the glorious appearing. And then second, the rapture involves a translation. Our bodies will be translated immortal in a moment of time, not in the glorious appearing. As far as I can see, there's no one that gets translated in the glorious appearing. Number three, Christians are taken to the Father's house. Wouldn't that be marvelous when we are taken up to be with him for at least seven years? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to going to the Father's house. I read such passages in the scripture that I was in a home of a man in Bel Air or something on Hollywood. It was a, a $25 million house. And he was in the process of building a $45 million house. Uh, incredible. I don't know how he's going to live in both of them. But anyway, uh, when I saw that house, I thought, the mansion we've got in heaven is going to be better. Because the Bible says, I have not seen, ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man that which the Lord has, has planned for those that love him. And so uh, I could see that. My imagination is going to be better. I'll tell you, the best is yet to come. Instead, the resurrected saints do not see the Father's house. If there be some people saved during the tribulation period, but they will not see the Father's house. And then four... There's no judgment on earth at the rapture, but there is judgment at the glorious appearing. Number five, the church is taken to heaven. And in the glorious appearing, Christ sets up his own kingdom on earth. And then I'll come back to that in a moment. The rapture is imminent. It could happen at any moment. That's why it's imperative that we know Jesus personally as our Lord and Savior and not so the glorious appearing. It's going to be seven years after the rapture. 
So that whenever you read about the signs, by the way, there are no signs. That's the next one, it's number seven. There are no signs for the rapture. All the signs have to do with the glorious appearing. So whenever you're looking at signs, subtract seven years. It immediately makes it closer than it's ever been before. Number eight, the rapture is for believers only. Those that believe in Jesus. In verse 14, I'll come back to that in a moment. Number eight, it affects all mankind in the glorious appearing. And the rapture is a time of joy. There are not going to be any sad faces in the rapture. When we meet our loved ones and then we stand before Jesus, I mean, it is going to be a magnificent experience. But the Bible says when Jesus comes in the power and great glory, the world will look on him and they will mourn. Why? They missed it. They missed it. Sad to say. Number 10. The rapture takes place before the day of wrath of the tribulation. And the rapture or the glorious appearing uh, takes place at the end. Number 11. There's no mention of Satan in the rapture. Satan is mentioned in the glorious appearing. He's going to be cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Number 12. The judgment seat of Christ follows the rapture. But there's no time or place for the judgment seat of Christ that is recorded in the scripture in the glorious appearing. And then after the rapture, we have the marriage of the Lamb. Have you thought about the fact that we, as the bride of Christ, will be participants of the marriage supper of the Lamb? What an incredible festival. And it, I don't know if it'll go on the whole seven years, but we'll enjoy this magnificent time. And But in the glorious appearing, his bride descends with him. When Jesus is coming to the earth, he's always pictured with the bride of Christ coming with him. And verse 14, the number 14, only his own see him. The key to seeing Jesus in the rapture is being born again. And then every eye shall see him when he comes in his glorious appearing. And then finally, the tribulation begins after the rapture. The millennial kingdom begins after the glorious appearing. How much more difficult could it be? So when you see these things graphically portrayed in the scripture, you'll find an interesting thing. These two events cannot occur at the same time. They have to be separated by at least seven years. I think possibly, depending on how long the interim adjustments phase is between the rapture and the signing of the covenant. It may be a year, two, three, four years, but a very short time to get things ready. And may I suggest that we are privileged to know Jesus in this life and be assured. Is anyone here that's a Christian? You don't know the end from the beginning? No, none of us do. There are many unanswered questions, but may I suggest we're not worried about it? We know that we're in his hand, and when he shouts, we're out of here. What a good riddance that's going to be. Amen? We're going to be with the Lord. Now, I know some of you have read some books because the, the Satan always attacks truth. And there have been many books written and articles and speeches and sermons and so on saying that John Darby thought up this thing in the year 1830. He had a horse accident and broke his leg. 
and in 1827 or 28, a little before my time, so I don't, don't remember. But but uh, uh, during that convalescent period is when he studied the book of Ephesians and other prophecies in the Bible, and that's when he realized that this was all going to take place. But hey, he didn't invent it. Where did he get it? From the Apostle Paul. The inspiration of the Spirit of God gave Paul a message, and he wrote it, and we have it in our documentation. But some of our scholars in the Pre-Trib Research Center, Grant Jeffries, found this. But there's a, a quote that he found in the Syriac translation into the English. And for the first time, about 10 or 12 years ago, they discovered that Ephraim the Syrian in the 4th century made this quote. It's actually written in 372 A.D. And this, this is what he said. Why, therefore, do we not reject every care of earthly actions and prepare ourselves for the meeting of the Lord Christ so that when that he may draw us from the confusion which overwhelms all the world? That's a description of the tribulation, of course. But here's where it gets really clear. For all the saints and elect of God are gathered in the rapture, prior to the tribulation that is to come, and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. Is there any question that this was seen in the fourth century at least? Now, many of the writings before that can be obviously incurred and that's not the subject of our message this morning, but Ephraim saw it in the 4th century. We certainly should be able to see it in the 21st century. Jesus is coming, and one of these days he's going to shout from heaven, and we're out of here. Not because we deserve it, but he gives it. God bless you.